It was um, 10 years ago this last winter that I was home for three or four days on a, on a break at Christmas time and I was reading different articles and I stumbled across an article that caught my attention. I Xeroxed it immediately. I've kept it ever since. It, it rattled me, you guys. Um, it's a story about A.J. Jacobs, who was an editor for Esquire magazine, so he was well-known in the publishing world. And he decided uh, to go on a one-year experiment of living biblically, not a practicing or even a professing Christian at all. He thought he would just read the Bible, and then everything the Bible tells him to do, well, that's what he did. So I'll put on the screen both the before and after picture of this is what happens when you take the Bible seriously. They did an interview with Jacobs and they asked him, did it affect him at all? And he said, you know, the year was the most fascinating year of my life. It completely changed my life, my perspective. I learned from the Bible to be much more thankful. I think I became more community-minded as opposed to individual-minded because the Bible's all about being part of the community, you know? They asked him, were there any parts that was applicable to your life? He said, yeah, there were lots of parts. There was a part about avoiding gossip, a part about avoiding lying. There's a part about coveting. He said the part that stuck with him the most was the part that called on him to forgive his enemies. He said, I had a habit whenever my wife did something that annoyed me, I would take my smartphone and enter the details in my smartphone. You should never do that, by the way. <laughs> then I read the Bible that calls me to forgive people like this, and I deleted. I remember the day I deleted all of those notes of all those annoyances. He said, the part about the Sabbath stood out to me because I'm a workaholic. I work all the time, seven days a week. My phone is always going off. And I think the Bible said that we should take a complete rest. And so on the Sabbath, I put my cell phone down. I would not answer emails. I wouldn't answer the phone. And he said, you know, it really affected me because I got in touch more with my family and I got in touch with myself. They said, were there any uh, strange things that happened to you? He said, yeah, the strangest one was um, when I was walking down the city streets and I came across a guy that asked why I was dressed so funny. And I told him I was practicing everything the Bible said. I was living biblically. The guy said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, it means I take the Bible literally all the way from uh, the Ten Commandments uh, to the end of Revelation. It means I do everything from stoning an adulterer to taking the Sabbath off. And the guy said to him, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And uh, Jacob said, you know, that's a really good idea. And he said, I had a handful of pebbles in my pocket. I reached under my robe and I grabbed a handful of pebbles out of my pocket and I chucked them at the guy. And he said, the man was really taken back at first. He called him a confrontational adulterer. <laughs> he said, the man reached down after he recovered and he picked up the stones and he chucks them back. They said, how did it change your life? And 
He finished by saying, I went through all sorts of permutations, including believing very strongly in God. But by the end of the year, when I stopped praying as much all the time, I sort of settled into a radically different agnosticism. I am what a friend of mine calls a reverent agnostic. Whether or not there is a God, I believe there is something very important about the idea of sacredness, but I never did convert. I never did make the leap of faith to accept Jesus as my Savior as I read the New Testament. I tried to live by his ethical teachings, and they did change my life. It rattled me because I started to ask a soul-searching question about our church. What are we making here? I have almost no doubt that if someone like A.J. Jacobs came into any church, our church included, and he started to make the kind of changes that he made, if he started to live with a meticulous obedience to everything that he read in the book, I have almost no doubt that he would be accepted as a member. I have almost no doubt that he could easily go on to the board. I have almost no doubt that he could easily be ordained as a minister inside the church, but I never did convert. What happened to him? What are we making here? I began to ask, God, if we raise up a generation of Christians who do everything that you tell them to do, but they don't like it, does that count? the back of my mind, I remembered the words of John Wesley who wrote in his sermon, The Almost Christians, I did these things for many years. I diligently hated what is evil. I had a conscience void of offense. I redeemed the time buying up every opportunity to do all good to all people. I constantly and carefully used all public and private means of grace. That means he took communion twice a week. He fasted. He prayed. He immersed himself in scripture. I endeavored to have a seriousness of behavior in all places at all times. And God knows I did this with a sincere heart. It was my desire to please him, to fight the good fight, to lay hold of eternal life. Yet my conscience bears witness in the whole Holy Spirit, that all this time I was yet almost a Christian. I never did convert. I changed everything, but I never did convert. Paul said, if a person is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are gone. All things are new. Not some things. All things are new. 
when a person is in Christ. It may not happen all at once. It may not be instantaneously everything is changed, but the wheels have been set in motion. There is an inevitability to holiness because all things integral to the person's being has changed. Paul, I think, got his theology of conversion from his own experience on the road to Damascus. It's not uncommon for people to have an experience, a deep religious experience, and from that experience to write a theology of how God changes an individual. And I think Paul did this. While Jesus uh, tends to say things more like Christianity happens to a person in degrees, they slowly warm into it. Paul has this kind of before and after mentality. This is Paul. It, it, it's, you're not what you used to be. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, neither the sexually immoral nor the idolater, nor the adulterer, nor the homosexual offender, nor the swindler, nor the thief, nor the drunkard, nor the slander shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now wait for the next verse. And these things you once were, but now, now you have been justified and sanctified. Do you hear the language? These things you were, but now, Paul has this kind of before and after mentality and I think he got it on the road to Damascus and he wrote out of that experience. So before I tell that story again, one that many of you know, I want to be clear that I do not think that everything that happened to Paul on the road to Damascus needs to happen to you. I think there is danger in making Paul's experience normative. But there is also danger in ignoring it. Remember, the book of Acts tells his story three times. If Acts could underline something, it would have underlined this story. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. In three different audiences, Paul goes back to his encounter on the road to Damascus. And so while he may not be saying, everything that happened to me must happen to you, he might be saying, there is something that happened to me that is at the core of a transformed life. So when you think about the kind of person you hope God is making you, and you think about the kind of people that we're trying to help God make in our church, Think about some of the things that happened to Paul on the road to Damascus because if we ignore this, we might settle for what I'm calling an Easterless conversion. It's Easterless because 
You don't need a living Jesus in order to have it. It's Easterless because it lacks magic. There is no moment where something happens and changes the nature. There's no fairy tale moment in it. There's no moment where the tears hit the beast and he becomes the prince. There's no moment where Cinderella's fortunes are changed. There's, 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 there's nothing but logic, intellect, reason. You can see the end from every point in it. It's Easterless. When I read uh, that there are 77 million professing Christians today in America, and 80% of them say that they have not grown spiritually in a long time, and two out of three say that they're too busy to worry about it. Another 25% say they're just not that much interested. That's Easterless to me. When 80% of those Christians say that they did not experience the presence of God in any way in a worship service, and 50% say, half of them say, they have not been in a worship service in more than a year where they sensed the real presence of God, that's Easterless to me. You don't need a living Jesus in order to have what they just had. And an overwhelming number of Christians say that when they make major decisions, the three sources that they confront are the media, the law, and their family. Nowhere in their thinking at all is the scripture. You don't need a living Messiah for a religion like that. He might be alive or he may not. You wouldn't know it if you were in a religion like that. Haven't heard him in the word, haven't sensed him in worship. I don't see him in the lives or the places of others. I go through the motions. He never shows up. That's Easterless. Now, I'm not saying those people are not genuinely Christians. That's not my call. I have absolutely no opinion on that whatsoever. But I am saying that is not what is intended for us. God wants so much more. Are you still with me? All right, I'll pick it up. I define an Easterless conversion in the following way. An Easterless conversion, in my mind, is a set of beliefs without an encounter. It's a set of deep moral convictions without new life. It's self-actualization without a bigger purpose. Now watch what happens to Paul. Paul said in Philippians chapter three, I was raised a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. There were two pillar rabbis in Israel's history. Gamaliel was the other one. Translated, I had the equivalent of a PhD in divinity from Oxford or Cambridge University. I served the God that you worship every Sunday. Not some other God. I am a Jew, tribe of Benjamin. I know everything about the Old Testament. I forgot more by noon than most of you will ever know about the Old Testament and about the God I serve. Some have said that Paul was easily in the top seven brightest minds in the history of the world in any field. He had enough wattage north of the neck to light half of Indiana. And he serves our God. And he is zealous for protecting our God from his enemies. So he's on the road to Damascus with a letter in his pocket containing the names of people that he's going to arrest. And when he gets there, he's going to either put them in prison or he's going to have them killed. He confessed to doing both of these things. Imagine his shock when on the road to Damascus, he who is persecuting God's enemies learns that he is one of God's enemies. And God is not stamping him out the way he was stamping them out. No, no. God is letting him live. <sighs> Halfway across that road, a bright light came from heaven and it knocked him off his horse. He laid on the ground. He was struck blind. And in Paul's words, I heard a voice. And it said to me, in Hebrew. <laughs> I didn't think God spoke Hebrew. I thought he spoke English. He said, I was blinded by that light and I heard a voice that called to me in Hebrew, in a language I speak. I heard a voice that sounded a lot like my voice but it wasn't saying things that I would say. And it said, Paul, why do you persecute me? And I said, who are you? And that voice said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Acts 26, that voice said, this has got to be hard on you. Imagine you know all that about him. And then you meet him. You meet him. What happens on the road to Damascus is not, I repeat, not a sinner becoming a saint. Paul is a lot of things. He is no sinner. What happens on the road to Damascus is not simply the changing of religions. 
What happens on the road to Damascus is a man who is full of religion runs into the person that he never met. He has a living encounter. Say that in slow motion. He did not run into a set of moral convictions. He did not run into a set of deep theological beliefs. This is no doctrine. This is a person. And he is talking to me. Why do you persecute me? Who are you? I am Jesus. Imagine Paul's shock when he thought to himself, God, I knew, but I was not ready for this God. This is not the God that I knew. He's somebody different. It's a clash of visions of who God is. One is leaving and another is coming alive. What do you want me to do? Paul said, and the voice said, get up and keep going into Damascus and there you'll receive your instructions. Because he was blind, he didn't know where he was going. Wait for it. The soldiers that were with him, Paul said, did not hear the voice. They took him by the hand and they led him into Damascus. And while he was sitting there, an old man who was really devout had also received a dream in the night and it went something like this. Ananias, I'm sending a man named Paul to you tomorrow. You're gonna meet him. Ananias said, Lord, not him. No, this guy has wreaked all kind of havoc with the disciples in Damascus, not him. You ever had that conversation with God? You save whoever you want, but not him, not him. I had it just four or five days ago. We were in my house talking about somebody who had just killed three or four people. And I remember saying, just off the cuff, this world is a better place if he's not in it. We could lose him tonight. And get along just fine. Have you ever had that conversation? And right after I had it, I thought, Dad Gummit Paul. <laughs> the Lord said to Ananias, quite to the contrary, this man that you're afraid of, this man you wish wasn't alive, I've called him. He doesn't know it. I'm going to show him a few days from now that he's going to go out and suffer. Yeah, him who caused suffering is going to take it in my name. You got to lay hands on him. Ananias went over. I can imagine the old man's hands were trembling. And he touched Saul's face. And when he touched his face, something like scales fell from his eyes. And for the first time in about three or four days, he could see. He got up and was baptized. He left the baptism and went straight into the synagogue. Can you imagine the shock on people's face when Paul walked in? Some of them said, wait a second, isn't this the dude that was like 
persecuting people. <laughs> and Paul began to preach eloquently and with force. It was as if God took all of those brains that he'd had, that he'd accumulated all of these years, and he put them together in laser focus. For the first time, it was as if Paul's entire life was one of preparation for this moment. And so he argues like no one else can that Jesus is the Son of God. And some people believe, most of them didn't. So they said to themselves, we got to kill him before he gets out of town. They sent guys that waited out by the gate at night. They figured he'd try to sneak out. And when he did, they'd catch him and they'd kill him. Paul got word of it and his friends put him in a basket and they lowered him by the rope on the other side of the wall and he ran off to Jerusalem. And when he got in Jerusalem, the disciples were gathered into a room and man, in walks Paul. And they're like, no, man, who told him? They wouldn't believe it. Then the guy named Barnabas, his name means encouragement, took him by the hand and he walked him over and put him inside the circle of disciples. Now listen to the language in Acts chapter nine. And when the brothers <laughs> laid hands on him, I thought to myself, when did disciples become brothers. When Barnabas, that's how, when he took him by the hand and said, listen, he is not who you think. Something happened on that road and he is a new person. You listen to him. This guy makes sense. And they sent Paul from Jerusalem back to his hometown of Tarsus. If you listen to that story, you will hear a few things. One, you will hear that a man with a head full of ideas had an encounter with the living one. It's one thing to come to church week after week or sit in college day after day and fill our heads with ideas. I'm not going to minimize this. All of it is vitally important. But it's not the same thing as meeting him. When you meet him, he is no mere idea. I never met someone more terrifying and safe in all my life. I grew up inside of religion. I had more verses in my brain by memory by the time I was 12 than many ministers have today. I went off to school, IWU. I studied theology. I learned the language. I loved the logic, loved to know how things work. I loved it. I went out into a small church of 21 and I preached as much of them as I knew. 
And then one Thursday afternoon, with the door shut, I met him. <laughs> he is nobody's idea. Some of you this morning are right in that place, man. All you know is what you've been taught. All you know is what Sunday school steeped in your mind. It's a head full of ideas and a list of verses. It's a set of deep morals. And I hope you never lose any of that. But have you met him? Has he come to you? I don't believe we all ought to be knocked off our horse. I don't think we have to be blinded. But I think a few things that happened to Paul has got to happen to us in an encounter. One is you're never looking for it. He wasn't. Two is when it happens, you're never in control. You won't sit there and say, well, now here's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. You're going to sit there just dumbfounded for a while like you can hardly talk, and maybe you'll be able to put a sentence together that goes something like this. What do you want me to do? You're not in control anymore. He's in control. Three, your view of God will hit a wall. Everything that you knew of him will collapse. And another one. Another one, more real, more personal, will rise in his place. Has that happened to you? You might be thinking, no, tell me how to make it happen. <laughs> That's another religion. I'll tell you in a moment as much as I know. The second thing, and I'm going to stop with this, is that I believe on the road to Damascus, Paul did not just meet the person that he'd studied. I believe that person that raised Jesus from the dead came inside of Paul and made him brand new. That's why Paul would say, if a person is in Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creation. That's creation language. No, listen to it from Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. So now, from now on, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Translated from this point on, rules or no rules doesn't matter. What matters, Paul says, is a new creation. Paul is convinced that that new creation is a result of the resurrection. In Romans chapter 6 verse 4, he says, just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may live a new life. Peter picks up on this and says, in his great mercy, God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul says in Ephesians 
4.23 that we must put off the old self and put on the new self. He says in Ephesians 2.15 that the very purpose of God was to take people who were enemies of each other and to create in himself one new person out of the two. Do you hear that language? Everything is new for Paul. And it's a result of the resurrection. Whenever God does something new, it's unprecedented. You can't see it coming. You can never turn around and say, oh, I know how that happened. <laughs> you know the parts. But you can't see the magic. Sarah was barren. And right about the time Abraham complained and said, I don't have a son. It'll be a servant who comes from my body. That's when the Lord showed up and said, I'm going to do something brand new. You've never seen this before. Like what? She's going to have a baby. <laughs> Lord, she's 90. She's 90. <laughs> Lord, we know how babies happen. We got this. <laughs> I'm doing something brand new. When I do it, even if you know how it works, you can't make it happen. It comes out of nowhere and it's brand new. When Mary is unmarried <laughs> and an angel appears and says, you will give birth to a son. Mary says, I'm not even married. We know how this works, Lord. And it hadn't happened yet. There can be no son. And the Lord says, I'm doing something brand new. I know you know how this works, but I'm going to do something that jumps the rails, something that no one else can do. When God does something new in you, it is unprecedented and unforeseen. You can't put it in a bottle and market it in a formula or a plan of salvation. You just walk away and say, gosh, I don't know how he did that. You're dumbfounded because people will say, well, tell me how it happened so it'll happen to me. And you'll say, well, it happened like this. I was just sitting there. Suddenly all of that mental muscle melts into wonder. When God comes inside of you by his Holy Spirit, he creates the engine that fires everything else. He gives you a new spirit. You suddenly start wanting things you couldn't have wanted if you tried. The Bible suddenly gets interesting to you. You look at people that you used to think were nerds or wimps and suddenly you admire them because there's something in them. There's a simplicity. There's an elegance in all of their lives. 
and you want it for yourself. The people you used to persecute, you want to be like. After that, your friends change, your company changes, your attitude changes. You got whole new dispositions. If you were mean and ornery, not that you were, but suddenly there is a sweetness about you. If you worried and you fretted or you were angry all the time, there is slowly a tranquility, a sense of confidence and hope that just exudes out of you. And the best part of it is you're not making any of this happen. Huh? He's alive and he's in you and he's bringing you alive. Paul said in Romans chapter eight, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will raise your bodies too. He's not talking about dying and coming alive. He's talking about that spirit will live inside of your physical body. That's the part that you've said for so many years was a ball and chain. I'd be so spiritual if it wasn't for this body. Paul said, let the spirit get inside of that body and he will animate himself in you until your body is a temple. I know every one of us longs for this. Some of us have given up on it, but that voice is still there. And you're asking right now, man, God, so much of what he said is true. I did all this stuff and am still almost a Christian. I haven't quite converted. What do I got to do? If I gave you three or four steps and you did them, they might not work. Or if they did, you might think it was the three or four steps. This is him. I can't make this happen to you. But I can tell you when it does. Everything is going to come alive. And I can tell you this. God really wants this for you. If you're out there saying everybody else but me. Yeah, I'm like Ananias. Everybody but me. God himself says, yeah. Even Ananias. Even you. Even you. I have a place in me that you fit. My goal is to bring you into union with myself. That is exactly what God is doing. The only advice I know to give you is continue to seek. I know this, that everyone who seeks finds. To everyone who knocks, keeps knocking, the door is ultimately open. Everyone who asks 
receives. So continue to stay in the places near the things that you know God frequents and he will find you. We don't see it coming, but he will find you.